There's an idea that my friend Clayton Reedy likes to share. He says, we need a heart shift before a mind shift. And that's because when people connect with an idea emotionally, they're moved to action. There's no amount of numbers or logic that can change what somebody thinks. But if they can put themselves in somebody else's shoes just for a moment, maybe, just maybe, they'll have an epiphany and want to do what is right. Flying from Sydney, Australia to Boston, Massachusetts, my friend Clayton had a heart shift. And it was regarding family engagement, which ultimately transformed his school and the school's relationship with parents. We'll start with this story at the beginning of the conversation. Well, actually, Clayton and I take a trip down memory lane for a few minutes before discussing family engagement, but that is the main point of today's conversation. Hey, it's Daniel, and welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, a show for ruckus makers, those out-of-the-box leaders making change happen in education. And we'll be right back after these messages from our show sponsors. The Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is brought to you by Organized Binder, which increases student active engagement and participation and reduces classroom management issues. Learn more at organizedbinder.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by TeachFX. It's basically like a Fitbit for teachers helping them be mindful of teacher talk versus student talk. Get a special 20% discount for your school or district by visiting teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. Isolation is the number one enemy of excellence, and isolation is also a choice. There's a better way. In fact, here's what Michelle, a school leader in Maryland, has to say about the mastermind. The best part of the mastermind is a supportive community. School leadership can be isolating, but knowing I have a team of other school leaders with whom to share ideas, struggles, and wins gives me the courage and resolve to do what's best for my school community. Get connected and level up your leadership by applying to the mastermind today at betterleadersbetterschools.com forward slash mastermind. And Clayton, welcome to the show. Yeah, g'day, Danny. It's great to be here. Nice to see you again. And uh, uh, nice to continue the the professional relationship that we started so long ago. I, th- I think I was one of the first people that uh, that signed up for Mastermind. Isn't that right? So I'm, I'm glad I'm still a part of the family. Well, uh, first of all, uh, I owe you a shout when we uh, hang out next so that uh, for just the relationship and yeah, you know, Mastermind hanging out together, like you said, um, Early in the mastermind, you were you were literally the first person to ever reach out when I launched this podcast, and it had to do with the uh, the ten phrases of effective school leaders, if you remember, and you used that with your uh, your leadership team. But I'm trying to go back, man, Clayton. You were episode eleven that released October twenty eighth, twenty fifteen, all the way back then. Well, I was hoping that you wouldn't uh, remind people of that because I don't want people going back and listening to it. O- occasionally, I'll have a listen to it and I'll just cringe. I'll, I've got to say, uh, you know, Danny, when I'm, I'm chatting to all of you people from, from North America that I, uh, I get a little self-conscious of the accent. I think that day it was worse than ever because I was a little bit nervous about it. But um, I, I certainly remember the 10 questions. Um, yeah. I remember that 
I developed a question a question sheet for my for my leadership team, and I I played them. Your it was only a small snippet that was on better yeah. leaders, better schools. I think the whole thing went for about five minutes, and and I got them to reflect on the questions and and how often have you asked these? How often do you hear these? And it was a conversation starter for us, and it was nice for them to hear a different voice other than listening to me all of the time. And, uh, and yeah, it was it was great. And and I think I did that and then sent you an email and introduced myself. And I was probably the first person from this part of the world to reach out. No, you're the first person, period, in the world. <laughs> oh, there you go. Isn't it funny? You, it must be amazing to, to put some, some content on the internet, wondering if anybody's actually going to read it or listen to it or pick it up. And um, and I was living proof that the answer was yes to all of those things, that it was a, a great opportunity to be a part of that and, uh, and to use it and to share that with you, which was fantastic. Obviously, very rewarding for me, but even better is that uh, we struck up a, a genuine friendship, you know, and have stayed in touch all these years. So that was pretty cool. We did. And the first time I came to Chicago was 2016, about 12 months after that, and an opportunity to do two very Chicagoan uh, things. We, we went and saw the White Sox play, not the Cubs. Um, yeah, that's you were right. very, very keen <laughs> to make sure you took me to the right ballpark. <laughs> and, uh, and then we went for the deep dish pizza the, the next day or the day after that. And yep. uh, so it was, was fantastic to meet you. And uh, I'm so proud to be a part of that and, and so proud that, uh, that our relationship continues to grow and that I'm a part of this as well. And to see how far you've come in your personal and professional journey is something that gives me, gives me great pleasure. Thank you. And uh, we're going to start giving some value. Uh, I think people enjoy hearing uh, how positive our relationship is, but we definitely need to deliver some value to them through the conversation. So we're going to move to that. But I want to speak on cringeworthy recordings. Even if people want to go back to episode 11, I don't think they could right now because in iTunes, you can only have 250 episodes, right? So you might have it on your phone because you subscribe. But if you're new to this show, I don't think you could even go back that far. The good news is that I'm archiving all of what I call season one, the first 250 episodes. And I'm going to release that as a new podcast because some people haven't heard those old, old episodes. There still is value there. And uh, I'll, I'll let folks know how to get to that. But also cringeworthy, that effective school leaders, although the content, the ideas are good, when I go back and listen to like, you know, me on the mic, and now I'm so much more relaxed and confident, I hear that thing and, I, and I'm like, oh man, what are you doing there? And uh, I, 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 I don't was, know. I was the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was exactly the same. One of the things when I, when I had the chance to, to study in the States, and I, I know that we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit uh, through the next, you know, through this conversation. I remember one of the quotes that, that I picked up was one of the professors said, and this was about education, but it equally applies to any aspect of your life. Um, sure. He said, you do the best job you can at the time. And when you know better, you do better. And it's a bit of a mantra for continual improvements. And um, yeah, hopefully tonight's a little better than that rusty one from five years ago. <laughs> it already is. And uh, you've launched us into it with that quote. And so let me set you up um, to talk about that experience in the U.S., uh, I know you've done some interesting things in regards to family engagement, and you uh, were a part of a, a Harvard program that really was yes. a catalyst for that. So yes. I want people to visualize. There's Clayton flying 
miles and miles, hours and hours from Australia to the United States, reading the prep material, and you see that family engagement is an early session uh, in this uh, program, and you think, ah, maybe I should skip this one. <laughs> That's right. So, so Clayton, tell the ruckus maker listening, why was that your initial response? And why were you glad that you actually attended the family engagement opening session? It was my initial response because I'd had a, a run of very difficult scenarios to manage at school that, that involved parents. Um, complaining parents, always questioning teachers, excuse-making. There was some aggression in there. There were some parents that just appeared to be flat-out nuts, you know, a, a few kangaroos short in the top paddock. And the opportunity, and it was a full scholarship that I, that I won, which I was life-changing, where I had the chance to go over to, to Harvard um, at Boston there. And to study with about 250 other principals from pretty much right around the world. The, the majority of them were from the US, as you would expect. And it was an opportunity to, to go over and engage. But it was also an opportunity to, to reflect on where I wanted to be in my uh, career uh, and in my professional life. And dealing with parents was, was, was not one of them at that point in time uh, because of the, the run of very difficult um, situations that I needed to manage. I needed the break. Uh, so it came at a perfect time. And the last thing that I wanted at that time was to be told how I should be more accommodating to parents when I was ready to lock the school gates and to keep them out. And I read the material. And, and, and as you said, it's, it's a long flight from the first part of that flight was from Sydney to Dallas, I think it was. And, and, and I changed there to go on to, to Boston. And the Sydney to Dallas, you know, leg of it was about 15 hours. So it was an opportunity to, to catch up on that reading that we needed to do, the pre-course reading. And I did. I did consider skipping that. Uh, that that's how deep the wounds were, were cutting at that point in time. And I think as principals or school leaders, we go through that. Often thinking, gee, I wish it was like it was back in the 70s, where the only time parents came to the school was for, you know, PNC meetings, um, uh, which is where, you know, the formal meetings where parents come up or for parent-teacher interviews or when reports go out, that's about it. And as I said, it, it I contemplated going into Quincy Markets or, or going over to see uh, going over to see the the, the Red Sox or, or, or something like that that held a lot more appeal than than hearing a person you know preaching me on 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 why the way that I was feeling was wrong at that point in time. But look, I I sort of I thought to myself, look, sponsors have paid a lot of money to fly me halfway around to do this, and I owed it to them, and effectively I owed it to myself and my school community to to, to make sure that I engaged in all of it with an open mind, and and I'm so glad that I did. The professor who who took that that workshop and it was about a, a half day workshop was was Professor uh, Karen Mapp, and she's well known well known in the in the United States and she's actually come out to Australia a couple of times and uh, not not to Sydney unfortunately she's been to Melbourne a couple of times where she shared her research and her research was based around the fact that there were a lot of schools who had done everything that all research had said should work with kids, that, that should get them moving and improving in terms of curriculum and in terms of resourcing and funding and professional development and, and instructional collaboration and feedback, all of the stuff that uh, all of the stuff that Hattie tells us should be making a difference. Uh, but it wasn't for a lot of these kids. And, and when she looked and when she compared schools and organisations and the success or otherwise that they were having, she found that the missing piece of the puzzle for a lot of the schools was a deep, respectful relationship with families. And her work has been published. Um, it's called A Dual Capacity Building Framework for Family 
for family school partnerships. And, and it's actually a PDF that's readily available. So I'll send it to you. I'll send you the link so that you can put it in the show notes for anybody who's interested. And it talked about how unless we build those really deep, professional, engaging, trusting partnerships with parents until we get to know them, their families and what makes their family culture tick and what makes their children tick, we can never really gain the academic and well-being success with these little ones that we want to achieve. And it was life-changing for me. It was one of those ones where I went from not wanting to, to go at all to thinking, I am so glad that I walked in and I sat down with an open mind. It, it, it taught me an enormous amount that I could share with colleagues that I could take back to my school and that we could implement. And we had great results with what, with what we were doing. Yeah, and you often talk about how heart shifts are needed instead of mind shifts. So can you riff a little bit on what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this also comes back to that study at Harvard and, and, and so much of it too is just the school of life, just through making mistakes and, and, and getting to know myself better and getting to know others better. But in 2016 at Harvard, one, one of the work, other workshops was run by Deborah Helsing and she posed the question, why is change so difficult? even if we are genuinely committed to it. And she quoted a study which was done through doctors and it's often quoted, but it was where uh, people were told by their doctors, if you do not change an aspect of your behaviour, you will die. Black and white. So we're talking chronic obesity, people who were smoking, uh, diabetes due to diet or alcoholism. And even when presented with this ultimate motivator of life and death, only 12.5% of people could change without support, 12.5% even when you know, presented with that line in the sand. And in their mind, they knew they needed to change. It wasn't their thinking that needed to shift. It was their heart. It's at the emotional level, not at the rational level. And I've recently read a book by Mark Manson called A Book About Hope. Unfortunately, Danny has got too many F words in it to be considered for mastermind. Um, some of you listeners might also know that he wrote the book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a, yeah. not giving an <laughs> F. <laughs> and he describes that we're in a constant tug of war between the emotional brain and the rational brain, where traditional thinking was that our rational brain was responsible for our behaviour, that this part of our brain set us on a true course and occasionally our emotions try to knock us off kilter and drag us this way or that because it was fun or exciting or whatever. And Manson states that this is actually completely backwards, that in fact it's our emotional brain that runs our lives and it's all about having fun, getting love, dopamine hits and emotional satisfaction. And our rational brain is actually trying to keep us on the straight and narrow, but the best it can do is put bumpers up and down each side of the highway, I guess, with enough warning lights and street signs to hurt our emotional brain in the right direction. I guess the trouble is, though, is that the rational brain likes to think it's in charge. So if it can't stop the emotional brain from making us behave in a certain, often self-centered or dangerous way, it makes excuses uh, uh, to fool us into believing that it's really the boss. And I think I said this to you before, that the perfect example is the person who has an affair and, and cheats on his or her spouse. In, in every way, the husband knows this is wrong. So when the emotional brain takes the husband into the arms of, a, of, of another person, the rational brain still wants to give the impression it's in charge. So it justifies the behavior with thoughts such as, uh, I tried to talk to my wife about how I felt, but she wouldn't listen. So it's her fault. Or by being with the other person, I'm more satisfied and happy in life, which actually makes me a better husband and father when I'm home. 
which of course is is is, is rubbish. Um, I'm told that alcoholics go through this battle every day. They they know the only safe drink is the one left in the bottle. So when the emotional brain unscrews the lid of the whiskey, the rational brain kicks in with justifying thoughts such as. Um, uh, it's been a stressful day. Uh, one drink will help me settle the nerves and then I'll be in a better place to give up. So I, I guess relating this back to your question about the heart shift instead of the mind shift, knowing it makes rational sense to do something or change something or complete something won't actually get us there. We have to want it in our hearts, in our emotional brain, before we have any chance of it being embedded in our behaviours. There's not a teacher in our schools who doesn't want the best for our kids, or, or at least there shouldn't be. And it's frustrating when you see them behave in a way that holds kids back, um, you know, outdated teaching modes or behaviour and discipline systems from the 70s or continual, continually blaming parents or the system or the previous teacher or the child, him or, her, him or herself, instead of altering the practice to meet the need, even when they know what they're doing isn't working. And we don't necessarily need to change their mind. They know what they're doing isn't working. We need to change their heart to have any buy-in from the emotional brain before anything will change. Uh, we need the heart shift uh, more than we need the mind shift. Uh, otherwise, we will continue to make the same mistakes and we will continue down the path um, doing what we've always done with our rational brain making excuses for it. I hope I've, I hope I've explained that <laughs> well enough. Yeah. No, I think it's good. And, and uh, I talk about it a lot on the, on the show. That's why I assert that stories, images, experiences that touch ruckus makers' hearts are more important than the logic, the numbers, the spreadsheets. Because to your point, unless they feel it, unless they empathize, unless they understand, there's no amount of logic and numbers that can make you move. That's so true. And we talk about, you know, we, we, we talk about um, triangulating data all of the time. And, and it's why we need to look at the stories as well as the stats. And, and in my current role as a director, which is the, the equivalent of a superintendent in the, in the States, a lot of my work is talking to talking to principals and schools around the data sets that, that are showing it and, and how to interpret those. And and one thing that I never, ever forget, and I say this to my principals as well, is that every dot on that graph represents a real life living and breathing little human being who's got his or her own stories and own backgrounds and own culture and own heritage and own belief systems and, and a mum and a dad who are doing the best they can, desperately wanting their little person to grow into the best person that they can be. And you're so right in what you're saying, the, you know, the stats, the data. Yes, they tell a story, but they do not tell the whole story. We, we, need to, we need to understand and we need to appeal to the emotional. We need to understand what's going on in the beating heart um, just as much as the thinking brain, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Clayton, what was the traditional approach your, your school used to have to family engagement and how did that transform? Yeah, sure. Look, look. Coming out of that, I, I I came back, and I guess I had the I was all excited about this new method of engaging families to, you know, to get our our, our educations better for the for the little people in our school. When I had a look, and when I reflected on the work that we were doing with our partnerships with our parents, it was often superficial. We we taught collaborative programs, but we really did keep parents at arm's length. 
we only contacted them when something went wrong or if we needed a signature on a document or something. Uh, and, and this program was all about opening new doors of trust and understanding. Uh, it was deeply ingrained in curriculum. The bottom line was it was an academic curriculum-focused program. But the way that it improved reading and writing and mathematics outcomes for kids was by engaging the parents at that emotional level. And we did that a couple of ways. We did that, we did that by sharing data sets. Um, schools and teachers have access to a range of data sets that they, that they almost hide from parents, if that makes sense. And I don't mean that they, that they lie to parents or they do anything unethical, but what we write on reports and what we say at interviews is often, is often glossed over or it's presented in such a way as, uh, that we think that the parents will be able to, you know, to, manage that, to, to manage that data. We, we started by looking at writing uh, and we looked at all different aspects of writing, so spelling, grammar, punctuation, paragraphing, you know, all of those different things that make up good writers. And we, we ran our kids through some, some specialised assessments and we shared that data. We shared that data with parents. That was you know, part of the first thing that we did. And, and we shared it with them once and all. And that was scary for teachers because there were some aspects of writing where they had kids in year five that for, say, spelling or, 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 or paragraphing, their students might have been at a year one level. And we would normally dress that data up and we would present it to parents as, you know, areas for future focus and things like that, you know. And, and we actually said to these parents, look, we know that your child is in year five, uh, but in this aspect of the, of, of the writing, they're in year one or they're in year two. And that was scary for teachers because they were worried about parents saying, hang on a sec here, you've had my kid for six years and this is all you've done with them. Um, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you even getting paid? But no, it was the total opposite. We actually had parents who were delighted and thankful that we shared that deep level of data about their children because um, supporting that data were plans to improve. And part of building that trust with our parents was to engage in, um, to engage in home visits which of course was completely voluntary, but we had uh, our teachers who went with buddies. And it, as I said, it was voluntary. The teachers needed to volunteer and the parents needed to invite them into the homes, which, which uh, my leadership team and I coordinated. Uh, but we went into the homes because it was comfortable for the, for the families at Dalmany Public School, which is the school that I was principal of at the time. It had about 75% non-English speaking background. Sydney's a very, very multicultural city. And our particular part of Sydney and southwestern Sydney was was extremely multicultural. Uh, not as much as some, but certainly that um, that school and the organisation of coming into school was very was daunting for some of our parents. And so we, we were invited into the homes where we shared some of these data, we shared some of this data and, and uh, invited the parents to, to come up and, and they shared their stories. And, and those who couldn't speak English had uh, often had family members to, to translate. Uh, one of the things too, if I ever recommend this, was, was never be on a diet if you're going into this program because every household we went into, we got fed those, those families who showed love and Delicious respect food. through food. That's right. So <laughs> I think across a, a two-week period, I probably put on about 10 kilograms in weight. Uh, and, and still trying to, to get it back off you know, <laughs> five years later. But it was comfortable and it meant so much to those families that they had a group of educators that were saying to them, your child means so much to us. We actually want to come into your home so that you can talk to us about the love you have for your child and your goals and your aspirations for your child. And 
you know, we talked about stats and stories. It was presenting that information, but we did it in such a way that was 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 built around uh, building this relationship where we would walk the walk with the parents in terms of addressing the needs of their kids, and we got some fantastic results out of it. We, we actually did the. Um, I can't remember the actual figures of it, but but my deputy principal at the time had done some work with John Hattie, and um, he's uh, working in the University of Melbourne. I think he still might be there, or he's a New Zealander, but but, but lives in Australia. And uh, and we actually shared this program with him and and tracked the growth of the kids across the time that we did this. And I remember too that um, we just found out so much about our about our children, uh, and it meant so much to those families. We have a we have a support unit at Dalmeny. I still talk about it like it's my school, uh, although I haven't been there for, for a year and a half now. We had a support unit that had some high needs kids and we had a little guy who couldn't speak. The parents didn't speak English. Um, he came to the support unit. I guess he was in year one or year two, non-English speaking parents. Um, and he never spoke. He, he couldn't speak. And we didn't realise at the time. We, we just thought that he was, that he was mute. Um, that a part of his disability was was that he couldn't communicate. And when we actually spoke to the mum through her brother who was interpreting for her, we actually found that that when he was little, when he was a toddler, part of his uh, disability would, would manifest itself in behaviour where he would run and he would climb. And when they had their back turned, he ran into their garage, climbed up on the bonnet of their car and and pulled over a container that had caustic soda in it and the little guy actually ate the caustic soda and it it burnt his vocal cords to the point where he couldn't communicate anymore. And, um, you know, watching this mum recall her story about her little boy as tears fell down her cheeks changed us and changed me forever. And it it altered the way that we, we thought about curriculum and parents. And I do reflect on the fact that when I was flying from Sydney to, to, to Boston, if I had gone with my initial instinct, which was, I really don't want to be lectured about involving parents in education when I wanted to lock the gate at the time, uh, my mind would still be closed to that. I needed the heart shift as much as the mind shift. And I'm so glad that I got it. Wow. Well, thank you for uh, sharing that, that powerful story and how having that heart sh- shift can help us be open to the message that we need to hear. Uh, Speaking of messages that we need to hear, let's pause here just for a moment uh, for a message from our sponsor. And when we come back, I want to ask you how you got 30 of 43 classroom teachers to opt in to these voluntary home visits. Better Leaders, Better Schools is proudly sponsored by Organized Binder, a program which gives students daily exposure to goal-setting, reflective learning, time and task management, study strategies, organizational skills, and more. Organized Binder's color-coded system is implemented by the teacher with the students, helping them create a predictable and dependable classroom routine. Learn more and improve your students' executive functioning and non-cognitive skills at OrganizedBinder.com. Better Leaders, Better Schools is brought to you by teachers using TeachFX to increase student engagement online and in the classroom during an ongoing pandemic. 
Hi, we're the third grade team from General Stanford Elementary, and we're here to tell you about our experience with TeachFX. It has been a really eye-opening experience for us this year. We know that students who are highly engaged in the classroom achieve a higher level of success, so we use TeachFX to help us monitor and collect data. TeachFX has really helped us reach our professional goals to pinpoint students that maybe aren't used talking as much, as well as seeing our balance of wait time, group talk time, student talk time, and then teacher talk time across the grade level and kind of discuss with each other, you know, what's working in your classroom versus what might be working in mine. To learn more about using TeachFX to support your teachers with feedback during COVID, visit teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. All right. And we're back with an incredible ruckus maker, my friend Clayton Reedy, the first person ever to reach out about the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. And here we are five years later. That's right. Five years ago. <laughs> so you, you just shared really impactful story about uh, what you learned going out on these home visits and, and what you learned by uh, increasing uh, the family engagement at your school. The home visits were uh, voluntary, yet 70% of your staff, 30 of 43 classroom teachers said, you know what, I'm in, count on me, I'm going to go. How did you build that kind of enrollment into a voluntary program? Yeah, sure. Look, I was very lucky to have a staff that would would often give anything a go. They were open to new ideas and, and many of them would jump on board, you know, regardless of what it was. But reflecting on this question, I, I, I guess part of that culture that, that we built together, it began long before I stood in front of the staff and told them about this crazy scheme. You know, if you think about it, we're going to assess kids and share the bare bones of this warts and all with parents that may or may not look make us look fantastic or look terrible. We're going to, shock horror, trust parents to work alongside us to address the learning needs of their kids. And we're actually going to do this from the comfort of their living room, not the safety that exists on our turf within the school. Okay? So when you think about it, it, it was a pretty hard sell in some ways. And it sounds a bit sounds a bit nuts. Uh, I, I remember talking to some colleagues about it and, and 99 out of every 100 principals will tell you that we're never going to pull it off. But we, we, we stuck with it. We had some hurdles that we needed to to uh, overcome as well. I needed to make sure that um, that our, our workplace health and safety, um, that legal and industrial relations had signed off on it. At one stage there, the, the teachers union tried to tried to shut us down, but when they realized that it was that it was voluntary, they they sort of found that a little bit difficult. And and, and I, I I you know like to believe and still like to believe I have a, a great working relationship with our union. And, uh, and took the time to talk them through it as well. I don't think they were real convinced, but, but anyway, it, it is what it is and we, and we pulled it off. But leading up to that, I built a relationship with my teachers where I valued them as educators. I supported them, supported them, and they trusted my leadership as a result. And I had a wonderful deputy principal who, who managed a lot of the heavy lifting for me um, and other leaders who set a standard and had a go. And we had enough takers in that first year to run a pilot. In, in fact, when I was running the pilot, I had so many who wanted to volunteer to be a part of that initial pilot. I, I was sort of thinking, you know, we were a kindergarten to year six school. If I had one from every grade, if I had seven teachers be involved, I would have been happy because that would be enough to, to give it a go and to, you know, to, to build some success around it. But as I said, we, we ran the pilot, word spread, uh, word spread within the staff and also the parents. And, and, and that was funny too, because it was very, very different 
for anybody to be doing this in a school. Uh, in a mainstream school in you know downtown Sydney was extremely uh, different. And we had a few parents who said, you know, why do you want to come into our house? Have we done something wrong? Are you going to dob us into family and community services for something? Has our child told you something? Or, you know, and, and it was, no, 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 this is what it's about. And, and as, as we did this and as we built these home visits and, and, and trust started to grow, it took off from there. And, and, and I remember the first, you know, the first time that I, over the few years that we did this program, we, the noise in the staff room as teachers and their buddies, because we sent them out in pairs, you know, for obvious reasons. When they returned from the home visits, uh, the, the noise in the staff room, the bars, excited, happy people who took the first steps to revolutionising revolutionizing the way that we, you know, the way that we worked with parents. It, it took our partnership to a new level and it was genuinely exciting for our teachers to be involved in it. Um, genuine, you know, celebration of, of, of what we were achieving and, and real synergy in, in terms of what we were doing. Uh, you know, part of it too was we, we had parents come in, you know, once we once we built these, uh, opened these doors, uh, we had a lot of parents who, who came in and and, uh, and they were involved in instructional collaboration. Um, you know, I've still got photos of, of groups of teachers sitting in circles, groups of five or six teachers, uh, parents, I'm sorry, sitting in circles with a teacher, meeting in groups to discuss the progress of their kids in a warm, inviting, safe place. With parents saying, yes, my daughter was struggling with that concept and, and I tried this and it worked. Would you like me to give you a copy of what we've done because it might help you too? And, and parents who'd never spoken to each other or coming in, you know, sharing that success just as we want teachers to do when they're reflecting on their own lessons and, and building the capacity of themselves with their, with their teacher colleagues. We had parents doing this as well. Um, genuinely exciting practice. And, and when I look back at what the way that we engaged or didn't engage parents at that superficial level before this happened, it was a completely different way of doing business. And, and a lot of those parents who were traditionally, you know, and I use this term advis- advisedly causing us trouble, were often then our, our greatest supporters. Um, and so the spin-offs in terms of student attendance and in terms of complaints and in terms of behaviour um, you know, and, and well-being practices. It just had a flow-on effect to so much. It's look the, the thing that was hardest for me through all of this, and I, I do need to tell it warts and all. The thing that was hardest for me with this was was just as the program was was really beginning to be embedded. So we're in its you know its third year of practice. I decided to up and leave. I, I, I left the principalship and went into a principal support role called the principal school leadership. And that was fantastic in a lot of ways, but it, it meant saying goodbye to being a school-based principal. I was based at, at district office and I uh, went into the schools and I worked with principals and provided professional development for them and their leadership teams and, and support and coaching and mentoring to them. And in that transition between myself and a new principal, the, the program started to fall down a little bit and the new principal came in and she decided that she wanted to take the school in a different direction. And you know, and, and, and good luck to her for doing that. That's what she's paid to do. And, and as a result, it was one of those programs that was fantastic, but clearly needed more time to become embedded, uh, needed more time before it was that heart shift that, that it, you know, they, they often say that it takes four or five years, you know, sometimes seven years for, for something to be embedded in school, that it takes that long to get that change. But 
whilst that disappoints me a little, I also have great respect for the for the new leadership of the school and the direction that they've wanted to take it. And, and this happens, you know, we all leave schools and new leaders come in and take the school in a different direction. That's what they're paid to do. And I, I really respect and I value that. But I also know too that for for the teachers who are involved, you know, you quoted the 30 out of 43 classes. There were actually a lot more teachers than that because we had a lot of support teachers who were involved that acted as, acted as buddies and, um, and actually did the home visits. So, so when we look at a staff of um, as big as we had, there were, probably, there were probably 50 or 55 teachers involved in the program overall, which was wonderful. And, and I look back on it and I say that if being involved in that program took their understanding and took their knowledge of engaging parents to a different level, that that won't be lost. And that commitment to involving parents won't be lost. And that those opportunities to listen and to understand and to share what we're doing with parents and to have them as genuine partners in the education of their children, that will remain. And that's something that I'm really proud of. Yeah. So Clayton, uh, as we wrap things up here, what message would you put on all school marquees across the globe if you could do so for just a day? (laughs) Yeah, two rules. Number one, it's all about people. And number two, when you think it's not about people, say rule number one. Ah, I love it. It's all about people. (laughs) The, The new three R's, relationships, relationships, relationships. And I've the reason that I say that is that I've learned that people want, that, that people need to be valued, respected, listened to, appreciated, uh, loved, understood. And so as leaders, we need to value, respect, listen, appreciate, love and empathise um, so that people are feeling this. If we, if we don't do this, uh, at best, we'll never be effective. At, at worst, we'll see people react and behave in, in ways similar to what you're seeing in your country as we speak. And I. Danny, I certainly mean no judgment or disrespect towards America in those comments. I've made wonderful friends from all four corners of the US and I I love them enormously, including yourself. Australia's had its own issues, of course, with the manner in which we've treated our Aboriginal people from the time of British settlement right through to, to generations of elected Australian governments. And whilst we have many, many people who are fighting the good fight, until our Indigenous cousins feel respected and valued and listened to, it's going to be a hard road. I... Uh, in my current role, I deal with high-level formal complaints from teachers and parents towards schools, and, and 90% of these complaints boil down to the fact that the complainant hasn't felt listened to or respected. I remember once a principal came to me uh, to ask a, an issue that her community had with supervision, and it was something as simple as the way the students were leaving the school. And She came to me with a, not with an open mind. She came for no other reason but to hear me say that she was right. And I remember her saying, the department's policy says I'm correct, doesn't it? I'm, the policy is, you know, I'm following policy, aren't I? And I remember saying, well, yes, it does. <laughs> but it goes deeper than that. Your community doesn't care what policy says. They want to be heard and understood because in the court of public opinion, in the hearts and minds of your parents, you're never going to win by quoting policy to them. And, uh, look, I, I guess it's not about rolling over and giving in because some people's concept of fairness is if I don't get my way, it's not fair. And, and, and of course, that's not okay. And look, indeed, I, you know, I often find in favour of schools and principals in, in you know, many of the complaints I manage, but it'll never be because the complainant hasn't been listened to or valued, and, and, and at least that's my goal. I, uh, I've said before, probably to you, Danny, that the role of the principal is a paradox. We're, we're put in positions to lead, but we should never forget that we're in positions of service and, and taking time to listen, to, to understand 
to know what's happening in, in people's minds, in their heart. It's about intimacy, um, which really means into me see. And the parent who constantly complains that the teacher's not catering for their kid with a disability, you know, that, that might be what they're saying. But we need to be hearing that they're often still grieving for the healthy child they never had and they're scared to death of what the future has in store for him or her. The, the teacher who complains that the supervisor is too demanding or tough um, often wants to change, but they're scared they can't cut it in this modern world. Uh, the parents who are sick of the school calling about their misbehaving child fears they fear the system can't see the good in their son or daughter or the call reminds them of when they went to school and really struggled to fit in. And this stuff really hurts and it, it cuts to the bone at the most basic human level. I, I've had times where I've jumped to conclusions and I've judged and when I realise I do this, I, I genuinely apologise and attempt to reset the relationship compass by listening and, and trying my hardest to understand it. I often say God gives me a lesson in humility when he knows I need it and it still happens to this day and no doubt it will until the day I die. I, 30 years ago, when I was a beginning teacher, my wonderful first principal said to me, Clayton, everybody is worthy of dignity and respect and I've never forgotten this and I try and make it a mantra in everything that I do. So what should be on the, the flagpole of every school in every country of the world is, it's, it's all about people. We're in the personnel industry and until we we change the hearts, we'll never change the minds. Well, Clayton, thank you so much for being a part of the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. I will tell the ruckus maker listening, go back to episode 11, which will be available once we release the archive of season one, episodes one through 250. Uh, and there they can hear how you build your dream school. But of all the things we've talked about today, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? Um... Don't be too hard on yourself uh, is the first thing. We make mistakes, but it's important that we learn from mistakes and that we move on. And it's an oldie but a goodie that people don't care what you know until they know you care. It's important that we touch base, that we understand the stories behind the stats and that we see parents as doing the best job that they can and that we support our teachers to do the best job that they can so that we can build the citizens of tomorrow that's going to bring our world together. And I know that sounds all very altruistic, but hey, we're playing with high stakes. This is, you know, we have a we, we have a saying in Australia that, you know, we're playing for sheep stations here, which means it's a high stakes bet. And it is, it is, because the future of our world depends on the work we, we do today. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed. Dismissed.